Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Welcome, everyone, uh, to a, a very special election live stream of the Irish Passport podcast. And a very special welcome, uh, above all, to Eva Moore, who is political correspondent with the Irish Examiner, uh, who has very kindly agreed to join us for this election live stream. Hi, Eva. Hi. <laughs> and, uh, we, we will see if we will be able to make contact with uh, Dara O'Shea as well uh, of the amazing Motherfucklore podcast. Uh, he might be along later on to give us his insights. Um, but um, just to set the scene before I start launching into questions uh, for the both of you, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, we're, in, we're in a very, very interesting situation with the Irish government right now. Uh, the last time that we talked about this on the podcast, uh, we were coming to you live from the RDS Count Centre uh, in Dublin, and that was a pretty historic election day because for the first time in modern history, uh, the Sinn Féin party won the majority of votes in a general election. Uh, but that left us in a really weird situation because Sinn Féin hadn't actually run the right number of candidates or enough candidates to form a government majority uh, by themselves. Uh, so the different depart- um, parties had been discussing this amongst themselves and amongst each other. Uh, but then the whole thing was kind of derailed by the COVID-19 panic. So it was kind of put on ice for a few months. And now we're finally seeing a conclusion uh, coming up. So the two major historical, uh, major historically major parties, uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, have uh, come up with a program for government with the Green Party. Um, and this is a pretty huge deal for reasons that we'll talk about uh, in a minute. Um, but uh, firstly, Aoife, where are you right now and what's happening? I am currently in Leinster House. Um, there was a limited number of passes for the Convention Centre today due to social distancing. So the journalists have been split up with half in the Convention Centre and half are here in Leinster House in the offices. Okay. Okay. And so what's going on right now? At the minute, Micheál Martin, I just saw there on the live feed from RTE, has received his seal of office from President Michael D. Higgins. So he is now officially the Taoiseach. You're not the Taoiseach until you get your seal. So he's officially the Taoiseach now. Okay, so we actually have a Taoiseach. Okay, all right. Now, I mean, a lot of our listeners tuning in probably won't be very familiar with the Irish political system. So for, you know, for beginners, uh, could um, maybe one or both of you uh, describe what is a programme for government and what does it really tie the government into doing in, in a real way? Well, sure, like, I mean, in general terms, um, what's happened is when you have an election, each political party runs on a manifesto, right? So they come up with the ideas of what they would do in in government. And then if you have a result in an election whereby um, you need to have a coalition of those parties in order to get the number of seats required in the doll to have a majority and to form a government, then they go into talks and they come together and they basically put parts of their manifesto in one document that they can all agree on. Um, so in this case, we have a program for government, which is sort of, uh, it's got elements which are like classic DC and Fáil, Fine Gael, and you probably remembered from previous episodes, we've described them as kind of difficult to explain in terms of international categorization. Um, Irish political parties don't neatly fit into the left and right 
um, binaries that we're familiar with from other countries. Uh, but essentially, my, my sort of shorthand of explaining the difference between them is Fianna Fáil traditionally a bit more conservative and a bit more happy, happy to spend. So kind of a Christian Democrat party that's a bit more spendy, whereas Fine Gael is a little bit more on the um, uh, sort of liberal, it's sort of less willing to spend and it's also less conservative. So they've driven some of the landmark social reforms of recent years, including the uh, equal uh, marriage referendum and the abortion referendum. But they're, you know, they want to balance the books kind of thing. And they're, they're often, um, a lot of the opposition to them is driven from opposition to austerity. People want them to spend more. Um, so they've um, come together, they put in uh, together a program with the Greens. And the Greens have succeeded in getting in programs like uh, pledges to cut emissions, spend massive amounts on cycling infrastructure and that kind of thing. But maybe if you could tell us a little bit more about what really stands out to you about this program for government? Like what, what makes it different from, from, I suppose, plans for government's past? Yeah, so you, it's been hailed as the greenest program for government in the history of the state. Now, that doesn't really mean much because we haven't had <clears throat> many green programs for government before. But there's definitely a stamp on him from Eamon Ryan's party on it. I mean, there's um, further investment in, as you said, walking and cycling infrastructure. They've committed to a massive retrofit of homes, um, which kind of ticks two boxes. They want to create jobs and it'll do good for the climate. There's more talk uh, in the programme for government this time about regional development, you know, promoting rural towns and villages and diversifying farming. Um, we had huge protests before Christmas, uh, before the election last year, around the price of beef. And there's issues with Irish farmers and the money they're able to make. So the Greens have definitely put their stamp on that side of it too. They want to see, you know, farming diversified, more investment in biodiversity. So, I mean, compared to other programmes for government, it's completely different. It's a night and day. The Greens themselves fought for a lot more. They wanted a lot more environmental policies put on it. There was days and days and days of negotiations about housing and transport. These two, um, these two topics, they just fundamentally disagreed. Like the, they had fundamental differences on how these things should be approached. And they would feel, I think some of the TDs felt that they'd kind of been walked over towards the end. But I think a lot of the party were really happy with how they've done, considering how many TDs they actually have. They've put up quite a big stamp on this programme for government. Okay, all right. And, and, and like, how uh, quote unquote normal are coalitions like this in, in a dull government? Yeah, they're pretty normal. I mean, the it's kind of taken for granted now that there's probably not going to be a majority party in Ireland again for a really long time. I think it's quite reflective of the population. People say it's more democratic, but um, it's the last government that we had was another Fianna Fáil Fianna coalition. Now, it wasn't a coalition of equals, but a confidence and supply arrangement. So this is the first we've seen the end of what we call civil war politics. You know, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have been enemies for the last 100 years since the creation of the state. And this is the first official coalition between them as equals, but they have been partners before in confidence and supply. So it's, it's pretty normal. We're pretty used to it by this stage. 
Okay, all right. I'd love to kind of expand on this because it's something that we've discussed on the podcast before, this uh, idea of civil war politics. And I was watching uh, Leo Bradker in, in the, in the um, uh, convention center today uh, saying that, he, I think he said that uh, civil war politics is over in parliament if it's not over in society. Um, could maybe, in, uh, again, remembering that our listeners, you know, could, are coming from all over the world, uh, could maybe both of you kind of um, uh, summarize a little bit um, why this civil war, and when we say the civil war, we're talking about a civil war in the 1920s, why <laughs> still have such a grip on how we understand major parties in government today? Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think it, it's one of those things that, you know, it kind of bugs people because ideologically there isn't an enormous amount that separates Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, but culturally um, there has been. And like they're just they've been old rivals for a very long time but really what happened in Irish politics was that in the wake of the global financial crisis the political system that had been in place for close to a century was sort of dissolved I mean the Irish electorate lost a lot of its previous loyalty um to you know the the the, the, the um, sides that it had backed the big thing that happened was Fianna Fáil, which had been the dominant, the biggest party in Irish history, really, the foundation of the state. Uh, it lost dramatically all of its support because it was really blamed for that, you know, the terrible toll that the financial crash took on our, in Ireland um, and the, you know, the housing bubble and all that kind of thing. And those voters have not returned. So that sort of, that destabilization of the Irish electorate hasn't, uh, hasn't gone back uh, to the way it was. And what we have now is much more fluid and much more, um, stratified electorate so there's no one party that commands the big potential to even have a majority government that you know the likes of Fianna Fáil used to have um, and and with that process and even before that process that was accelerated by the financial crisis there was a feeling that you know in order for Irish politics to really progress to have more of an ideological uh, variety in it then you know at some point Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil would have to ruled together because they just they were just dominating and without having very much ideological difference between them. So if one went a little bit to the right, the other one would go a little bit to the left. And if one went to the right, left, they go to the right. So they're more or less kind of centrist um, and, and ultimately ideologically flexible. Um, and in the case of Fianna Fáil, they have a long tradition of really trying to, I suppose, reflect what they think the big majority or like ordinary man view of Ireland is. And in that sense, they've you can see that they've evolved over time from being quite a conservative party, very conservative party in the times when the Catholic Church was dominant to the likes of Micheál Martin, you know, advocating a yes vote in the repeal referendum, which is quite quite a, a shift for them. And the older people in their party now wouldn't be on board with that, many of them. Um, but yeah, um, some would say that the coalition between them now is is something that was inevitable, that was coming for a long time. And this is, you know, this is set, this sort of makes sense. Okay, right. Um, and I'd like to uh, turn to you, Eva, to, um, I suppose, set out for a lot of listeners who will be just wondering uh, at this point, um, the last time they heard from us, they heard this huge victory uh, from Sinn Féin and Sinn Féin winning all of these votes and this, this um, seismic um, uh, change for Sinn Féin. And now they're seeing a government being formed with three parties that are not Sinn Féin. Was that inevitable? Uh, did, did Sinn Féin um, uh, kind of mess this up? Or uh, as they might put it themselves, was this a kind of circling of wagons to keep them out of power? No, I do think there was, um, they, people will look back at this election and see it as 
a huge misjudgment on the part of Sinn Féin. You can understand why they did it, but Sinn Féin did not stand enough candidates. Um, they did not think that they could get the votes. The European elections had been terrible for them. The, lo the local elections and the Euro European elections in local government, they did not do well. They lost a really popular MEP in Dublin and they were still reeling for how from how badly they had performed in the local elections when the general election was called. And I suppose they were a bit burned. They were a bit, they didn't know what way it was going to go. So they didn't stand enough candidates and they just weren't expecting how popular they had become. They ran an excellent campaign. I don't think anyone could fault them. And they've completely rebranded um, the party who were seen Tech, they were seen kind of people judged Sinn Féin a lot obviously because of their history but they've rebranded they're now very attractive to renters uh, younger people they were on the right side of the repeal referendum and they just didn't bank on how popular they had become but they also had been burned in the year before so they didn't stand enough candidates they couldn't get a majority and the numbers then weren't there to create a left-led government because Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, the two large, used to be largest parties, had both ruled out speaking to him. They, speaking to Sinn Féin, they openly have contempt for Sinn Féin um, and, they just, and they ruled it out. So Sinn Féin just couldn't get the numbers together for a left-led or any kind of government, despite winning the most seats. I think that's something that's really important to point out is that in coalition systems, it as well as mattering the number of seats that you get, it matters how coalition friendly you are. So it matters um, whether other parties are willing to rule with you. And it's it's actually quite common in many political systems that there are parties that other the other parties don't like to rule with for one reason or another. Either they think they think that they're it's not in their own interests, their government their voters will punish them for doing it. They think that it might ultimately benefit the other party more than it benefits them. Or they, as Michael Martin and Leo Bracker often say, they have some sort of fundamental objection to that party. And in Sinn Féin, in the case of Sinn Féin, it's because of you know their their history with the conflict um, in um, in Ireland. So um, yeah, I think that's important to point out that it's not actually that unusual for something like that to happen. But I think what a lot of people are asking now is whether what we what will happen is that. The current government is going to take the blame for a lot of these very difficult to fix, very ingrained problems like shortage of housing in Ireland. And that dissatisfaction, which we've seen the demonstrated power of already in this election, is going to build up over time and perhaps ultimately deliver Sinn Féin with the election result, which they could have had if they'd run enough candidates in February. Um, but I guess that's something that remains to be seen. I see that perhaps we might have Darren Crochet from the Mother Folklore podcast here to join us. So I might, uh, I might let him in. Chat. Hello. Hi, Dar. Good to have you with us. <laughs> How's it going? Say hi to La Serena. Oh, hi. Oh, my God. What a wonderful guest. <laughs> so, yeah, having babysitting and being part of a political podcast is a, is a fun adventure. Also, also oh, yeah, multitasking. So. Fair play. But for everyone who's watching, if you don't know Derek already, Derek is, of course, the host of the Mother Folklore podcast, which if you haven't heard, you should definitely check out because if you're interested in the Irish passport, you'll definitely, you'll definitely love it. Um, Derek, how are you feeling today with what's happened? 
it's extraordinary. I think we're we're all very surprised by the by the the scale of the result, particularly the scale of the vote in of the green membership. I don't think anybody was expecting it to be as high as that. Seventy-six percent in favor, I think. Yeah, seventy-five percent. So it, it'll be interesting to see, I suppose, what the next stage is in terms of what. Um, and, and then yeah, I guess a, a big issue now is in terms of a, a, for three three fairly different parties or it's with three different certainly different leadership cultures, if not necessarily um, if not necessarily policies in some ways. Interesting to see how if if the right people get put in ministerial positions or if it's all if it's done in a, in a strictly kind of we get three you get four situation. I think that that's that is something that's always that's played coalitions not just in Ireland but everywhere else. Okay, right. Now, listen, it's great that we have the three of you just in time to uh, ask our first listener questions. And uh, by the way, everyone who's uh, watching along, you can absolutely throw us a listener question on YouTube. We'll see if we can get around to it. Uh, in the meantime, I see one of the one of the best comments so far is that people are um, uh, very impressed with my new tash. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> I it myself. All right. So uh, first listener question um, is about the leaders, the, the, the new leader situation, because, of course, the leaders of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have decided to kind of share uh, the role of leader on a rotating basis. So, you know, I personally don't know how on earth that's going to work. And Charles asks us from over on Patreon, he asks, um, is the rotating Taoiseach plan essentially a gentleman's agreement without a basis in law? Let's maybe go to Aoife on that one. Um, my honest answer is I'm not sure. <laughs> I know the idea of a rotating Taoiseach has been floated before. It's definitely something that was in um, our consciousness, but never actually came to pass. So this is the first time we'll actually have one. But I knew it was Anta Kenny, the previous Taoiseach, who had suggested it when he was looking for coalition partners the last time. But this is the first time that we'll actually see it. I'm not sure about the law, though Naomi might be able to answer that. Uh, well, basically, it's, it is a signed agreement because it's part of the programme for government. Um, but what we've seen in um, cases when things like this have been tried in the past is that there have been mishaps. So just as an example, there were two ministers, um, uh, Kevin Bossmarn and, and Sean Canny, who were supposed to share a ministerial post in the previous government. And what happened was the, the deal was that one was supposed to have it for a year, the other one was supposed to have it for a year. But they never, it wasn't clear to both of them what would happen. Uh, if the government entered a third year. So they ended up having a row once the second one of them ended up being in power for longer than the other one. And another famous, famous case of this is, is Gordon Brown and Tony Blair over in the UK, where um, they were supposed to kind of, they had a gentleman's agreement where Gordon Brown was going to take up Tony Blair at a certain point in time. And Tony Blair didn't actually respect that. And he waited until the global financial crisis to hand over to Brown, where, you know, Brown was obviously having an uphill battle at that stage. So yeah, to a certain extent, it is a gentleman's agreement, but then again, it backs up with the force of the support in Parliament. So you can't mess around with it without jeopardising the government itself. Um, so yeah, remains to be seen. Um, one of the super interesting things I find about this, this scenario, though, is, is the character of Micheál Martin being Taoiseach at this point in time. Because you cannot say that the election that we just had wasn't about change. Like it was a massive mandate for change one way or another. And Micheál Martin, if you were to pick one of the leaders who represents continuity, it's Micheál Martin, because he's been in Irish politics for absolutely ages. He represents Fianna Fáil, which is, you know, as we said, the dominant political part, uh, force in Ireland of the 20th century. Um, and also, you know, he's just, he's very much an old hand. And you've, you've seen the likes of um, Michael Lowry is going to be supporting the government, who used to be in Fianna Fáil. Um, he's now an independent, but, you know, he was, 
he was criticized by the Moriarty Tribunal for um, helping a certain billionaire to get a contract. And also, he was up in court for various tax offences. You know, that kind of character is it really represents the old politics. And so I think this gives a, a, a kind of an amazing opportunity for the opposition to paint this government as more of the same, even though, as Aoife has laid out, it is, you know, quite a radically green program for government um, if those things are actually enacted. Okay, all right. Um, uh, I have another question here from, uh, from Charles as well, actually, and it brings us over to uh, healthcare. Um, so, of course, Ireland's uh, healthcare policy isn't entirely obvious if you don't uh, live in, in... Actually, maybe, maybe um, one of you might feel confident enough to, to explain it in one or two lines. What's the deal with our healthcare system in Ireland? Oh, geez, a huge question. Uh, well, I think this particular question is about Sláinte Care, right? So, Sláinte Care is the big programme uh, for transforming the Irish healthcare system from something that's very hospital-focused into a more community care uh, focused system, uh, which is something which basically all the experts say needs to happen or should happen. Um, but what it requires to happen is a massive amount of upfront funding. And that is where the problem comes. So in theory, like most parties, almost everybody supports this plan, which is called Sláinte Care. Um, but in practice, allocating the money and actually implementing it is another question altogether. And I, perhaps you can set me right on this, Aoife, but it looks to me from this programme for government that it's been pushed into the long grass again. Yeah, it's, Sancha Care is a strange one. Like, it's one of those things that, like, all political parties agree on, but it never gets implemented. So, like, everyone, it's good politics. Everyone wants to see it implemented. But as we've seen, it just gets kicked down the road every time a government comes in. They're saying it's going to take such a long time. It needs all this investment. We need upfront funding. And I just think no one wants to touch it because they just don't. It's it could go wrong. And no, because it's held up as this totem of like, this is where we could be. And this is the result that we want. No government has actually made any great strides in implementing it. And we've seen money wasted in healthcare in other like the National Children's Hospital, which has been in plans and being built this last, I don't know how many years, it's seen huge cost overruns, like massive spirals. It went way over budget, millions and millions over budget. It's still not built, it's still not open, it's still not even near open. So it's quite strange that Slancha Care, even though it requires a huge amount of funding up front, no one seems to want to touch it, however, we have noticed during COVID we've moved away, and I don't think this is always clear to people if they're not, if they're not in Ireland. I, like a lot of my friends and stuff, didn't realise that we don't have an NHS here. You have to pay for your healthcare, and a lot of people weren't aren't aware of this. And like I'm originally from the north, so I availed of the NHS and free healthcare uh, my entire childhood until I left and moved to the Republic and had to start paying to go to the doctor, which I find incredibly strange. And the government says they want to move away from that system, but we haven't seen any great strides in doing that. They thought that COVID and the pandemic would kind of push it along. I think they called it one slant care on speed, but um, whether this actually gets implemented in this government is again remains to be seen because we're now facing a huge deficit. Fianna Gael are holding the purse strings because they're going to be given the Department of Finance. So it's just who's to say whether it'll actually get done or not. 
Right. Okay. So, um, uh, yes, indeed. I mean, uh, Charles brought that up. Actually, that you know, surely the current pandemic kind of underscores the need for a single tier uh, universal healthcare system. I suppose a little bit like the NHS. And we're a good panel actually to kind of look at this from um, from a consumer point of view, uh, so to speak, uh, because we all have experience of the Irish healthcare system and single tier healthcare systems uh, around the world. Uh, so like to say, uh, of course, Eva, if you go to the GP in Ireland, you um, have to pay, I think it's now um, like 60 or 70 euros. Euro, yeah. And I was, I gave away my Northern credentials even before I opened my mouth to the reception the first time I went to the doctor here because I was already out the door when she had to call me back to say, ah, no, actually you haven't paid. <laughs> nice. I mean, it is like, it's a huge amount of money and certainly it was, it was a lot less when I was growing up. Um, but it was enough to put you off and to put your parents off bringing you to the doctor when you were, you know, yeah. quite sick. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so this is a very, very different from a free at the point of use uh, system um, like we see uh, in the NHS or in other European countries. Yet at the same time, even with this with this system, we're, we, we have huge problems with, with trolleys and with accommodating um, just the sheer numbers of people who are sick in Irish hospitals. Um, Derek, um, you know, what would you like to see in, in the healthcare system going forward, ideally? If we have you, do we have that, Derek? I don't think he realizes nope. he's on mute. Oh. oh, there he is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there, there has been focus on. I think that at the moment one of the, one of the big issues is the, the HSC is involved <gasps> is involved in a lot of non-core activities. People are often astonished to find out how many things completely maybe not hospital related, not not kind of a regular care related at they're actually involved in things a lot of things like kind of homelessness and certainly other grants and things and people often find that there's a, a huge amount that of i guess a scope creep in in their brief and i wonder if maybe that's something that might be looked at but i think the main thing is that how possibly the yeah, the cost of going to doctors is something that is a deterrent for people who've been sick we've seen that now people like um um during covid as well and that Kind of people being scared of, of taking sick days in some, some situations and it's probably something that that needs to be looked at i suppose it's um healthcare my, my main experience i suppose with healthcare is having a daughter with additional needs and how some of those and how that those those kinds of services are funded and it's not something that really got brought up much in the election something we would have always brought up in the door and no one's and no one's against it which has always been the issue no one's against it, but uh, at the same time, getting people to actually look at things like there's there's still quite a disconnect between mm. early childcare services mm. and and then getting um, those kinds of supports in that for slightly older children. Mm. And it's been a yeah, it's frustration. It's not something I'm massively expert in, but it's the first thing that I can think of that I would love to see uh, a more kind of joint up thought process to services for people with additional needs. Right, okay, and I'm staying with you, Derek, actually. I'd uh, love to move on to the Greens, um, because, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think a few people involved in Mother Folklore are involved with the Greens, is that right? Uh, well, yes, one, one, my, one of my co-hosts, Padro Okavonik, is involved in the Greens. He is a, a councillor at South Dublin County Council. Uh, I can't speak for him and he wouldn't appreciate if I did, but uh, yes, it's, I know um, he would have been very involved recently in, in the in the meetings they were having, but I was deciding whether or not to be involved in the program for government. And, and so more, just more generally speaking, having uh, seen that world up close, how do you think the Greens and the Green voters might be feeling today? It's, I, I think the, it's, 
It's kind of hard to say in that. I think that with this party like the Greens, the whole point, on one level, you could say the whole point is to, is for a small party is to get into coalitions and leverage them and basically use these opportunities to get these policies across. And so I'd say there are probably people on the Greens who say, well, we, um, I'm sure there are people who think, yes, the whole point of, of being a Green is that you can, you take, you have a very specific policy base. It's not, it's not a project Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, which is kind of, which has a kind of a different appeal, which is cultural, sorry. But it's that the idea is that there's people, that people generally know exactly what the Greens stand for. And the idea is that you can squeeze anyone to get these out of it. So I'd say there are probably are people who think that um, to have the kind of the amount of votes they have and to not go in would, would be, would feel very bad to kind of to, to miss an opportunity to get certain environmental policies across, and especially to the idea that say if direct provision being one of the things one of the, one of their preconditions, I believe, to having that review revised and approached, if they thought, well, is staying out of government a good is 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 the benefit of staying out of government for tactical reasons for, for the next election a good enough reason to let people stay in direct provision for three or four more years. Okay, all right. Uh, Naomi, uh, coming, coming back to you, I'm still on the Greens. Uh, we have a related question here from Ro, and we had a very similar question from Andy, both, both over on Patreon. Um, so uh, Ro's question was, I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts over the idea that the Greens have a lot of power. If they pull out, we could potentially get some government with both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Um, uh, democratically speaking, those two parties got the majority of the votes, and so joining together makes sense. I'll tick the boxes of the mandate of the majority of the population. It, it will tick the boxes, rather. Uh, Eamon O'Keeve is in favour of Fianna Fáil going in with Sinn Féin. They are both Republican parties, and if Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael go in together, then they might, may just end up merging. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, in terms of the Green Party having a lot of power, it really depends how they play it from here. Um, so it can happen that the minority uh, party can be the tail that wags the dog, the government um, because they can you know they can collapse if they have the power of doing that so they can extract concessions um, through that however you have to be very good at politics to do that and the Greens have a lot less experience than the other two parties that they're dealing with so Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are you know extremely intimate with how the levers of power works um, whereas the Green Party are much less so you know the only um, sort of senior figures in the party with significant experience in Leinster House are um, Catherine Martin um, and uh, the leader of the Greens. And so we're, um, it really depends how they play it now. Um, and um, so that's kind of one count against that. In terms of the, like the dynamics of how it could play, yeah, there was an argument from a minority in Fianna Fáil that they should uh, consider going into coalition with Sinn Féin. And I know there, you know, there would definitely be a contingent who thought that that would be the more logical outcome of the election. Um, again, like they, they just, they have less cultural differences between them than do Fine Gael and Sinn Féin. Um, but all, you know, there, it remains the case that there's an enormous amount of people within Fianna Fáil who would be opposed to that. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't solve, it doesn't solve the issue. Yeah. Okay, right. And, and relatedly uh, for Aoife, we have another question here. Um, I'll read it for you. Um, did the Greens get a good deal? Should they go in and try and do some good, or should they push for bigger and more idealistic changes, but not actually get into power? Would staying out now lay the groundwork for Sinn Féin Greens' smaller party in five years' time? Yeah, well, I think as uh, to what Naomi said, it's all how they play it. I mean, did they get a good deal? Yeah, they did. If they can get their their policies implemented and implemented well, the issue that a lot of people worried about within the Green Party and the wider public, and 
is a well-founded concern is that smaller parties, when these kind of coalitions happen, pay the price when the government is unpopular. We've seen it before. The Greens themselves have been in this position before. They propped up a majority party and when it didn't go well, they were wiped out at the ballot boxes and they had to basically start from the ground up again. Eamon Ryan pulled the party from near decimation the last time they were in government. A lot of people said this time again, we're head, as we head into a recession with Fine Gael holding the purse strings, a lot of people are concerned about austerity. Members of the Green Party who were against the programme for government, their major concern was if we head back into austerity politics, the Greens will be seen as the bearers of bad news, propping up on us an austerity government and then wiped out at the ballot boxes. And, another, and a larger fear among people who are climate, climate activists is that then people start to see austerity and climate action in the same way. They see it as new taxes, whether it's carbon tax or different things. And it puts people off becoming more involved in the environment and climate action. So did they get a good deal? It definitely depends on how well the Greens manage this once they get into government. A point that I really want to make about austerity is that um, like the debate in economics about austerity has very much moved on since we had the Troika in Ireland um, in the wake of the financial crisis. It's very clear that austerity is a choice and no more, like particularly so in the current political moment, countries are, are able to borrow at historically low interest rates so it's almost free for them to borrow and spend and in the center of, of the eu you have now an increasing majority which is in favor of trying to get national governments to do that to borrow and spend to invest massively on transforming economies so that they are green so that they're zero carbon um, and also so that they're properly digital to try and keep some of the the benefits that have been introduced by the coronavirus crisis, oddly enough, in terms of the normalization of remote working and things like that, which are efficiencies that many people have sought for a very long time. Um, but so there's actually a huge political um, push for governments to borrow and spend. So do keep an eye on Fine Gael. And if they start saying stuff like, oh, we're gonna have to pay this back, we'll have a bill for this in the end. This, this, is, this is not sound economically. Economically, it's, it's, it's the mo most economists will say that you need to spend during a downturn. This is the time to borrow and spend now, not during, not when the economy is doing well, because that overheats the economy. But, but now it needs to be counter cyclical so that you give people jobs, you stop the recession from getting worse, um, and you you even out some of the some of the downturn now. And it's it's really cheap to borrow, so it's actually a great moment historically for the Greens to achieve some of the things that they want to achieve because there's a lot of international support for borrowing to fund massive transformational projects like you know creating a fully renewable energy grid um you know transforming anything you like um to public transport cycle networks um efficiencies renovating houses all of those kind of things um that, that's really really interesting actually um okay right i want to get in some of these questions from our uh, youtube stream uh, so, uh, number one it comes in here from John. John asks, and I'll put this to all of you, have Sinn Féin missed their moment? Will we ever see Sinn Féin bounce back from this? I'll, I'll take this one. Um, it totally depends. Like, a week's a long time in politics. This government that we've put together today is supposed to last five years, whether it does or not. You can say five years is incredibly a long time. A lot of stuff can happen. Well, it have missed their moment. It depends what happens. However, there was major concern um, from members of the Fianna Fáil camp 
that putting Sinn Féin in the opposition would just bolster their position. They would become, you know, a really loud voice. And when you're heading into a recession, people are out of work. Sinn Féin have already branded themselves, you know, they're the party for workers and families. So with a lot of people out of work, this is really going to play to their base. Mary Lou Macdonald is a great operator in the doll. She speaks well. She holds Leo Varadkar and Michael Martin to account. And as Naomi said, this was an election for change. Michael Martin and Leo Varadkar, whatever way you spin it, don't represent any kind of change in the leadership of government. They're both still there. They were there before. Have they missed their moment? We'll see how well Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael do in this government. They could, as Naomi said, borrow lots, invest in the economy, get Ireland back to work. The whole COVID um, pandemic has played really well for Fianna Gael anyway. They saw a rise in the opinion polls for how well they handled it. So it will just, we'll just have to wait and see. I can't see the popularity of Sinn Féin waning in the first year as Ireland dips into recession and we and Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are still at the helm. The, that could change depending on how well they handle it. But for the first year, I think Sinn Féin's uh, mandate will stay the same. Okay, well, I mean, uh, yeah, it is interesting because um, there were a lot of accusations being thrown around uh, in the convention centre today that Sinn Féin didn't really want to get into government because they're so much more comfortable being uh, in an opposition, uh, disingenuous as those accusations were, of course. Um, but is there any is there any truth to that? Maybe, uh, you know, did Sinn Féin maybe like not put in enough uh, energy as they might have into forming some kind of government because they, they're more comfortable in the opposition? I think they saw it as a win-win. I mean, they did have talks, like they definitely had talks with other party, left-leaning parties, whether they did absolutely everything they could to get a left government together, you could argue they probably didn't. But also, they're looking forward to opposition. Mary Lee has already said they're going to be the most vocal and powerful opposition the country's ever seen. So it would have been seen as a win-win for them. I don't think they, if they were afraid of opposition, they would have been so lackadaisical about putting together a left government. So... Yeah, I think maybe they're looking forward to opposition a bit more than they were excited about forming their own government. All right, okay, very good. Um, okay, this is a great question from Lance. Uh, Lance asks, uh, hypothetically, if one of the co-Tishuks, which is, which is a great new word, which I hope sticks around, if one of the co-Tishuks were incapacitated, would the remaining one be full Tishuk or would the Tanish be co-Tishuk? I understand that while one is Taoiseach, the other one is Tanisha. So while Michal Martin is Taoiseach now, Leo Varadkar is going to be Tanisha, which is like deputy, but with more extra powers. Um, and then when they're, they're supposed to switch around in December 2022, um, and then they will switch, switch roles. Now, if one gets incapacitated, God knows, I don't know, maybe, maybe they would swap earlier and off at that stage. Uh, but I guess it's a valid question in the pandemic times that we live in. Exactly, right? I mean, this isn't at all really hypothetical. This is a very, very uh, pressing in, yeah. when politicians of all walks of life are, are getting COVID all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, probably that is what would happen. I mean, I think in normal times, the Hornerster would take over if the t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Derek, if you um, were, um, well, I, I, I won't I think say. Derek has, um, has gone, yeah. Okay, right. Okay, well, I'll move on to another question then. 
uh, row us again. Uh, before we do a referendum on a united Ireland, we may need to have something similar to the NHS. I could see a lot of people wanting to stay with the UK just for the NHS. And this is, of course, something that comes up all the time. And like, it's a very, very understandable motivation uh, in people's minds uh, in Northern Ireland about uh, the possibility of unification if suddenly your healthcare system is going to look like the healthcare system in the Republic, which isn't something to be amazingly proud of. Uh, so uh, yeah, what, do you think that that's a motivation in all this? Is that, is that a facet or an aspect in all this? It definitely, sorry, it definitely can't be discounted. I mean, I'm from Derry, which is typically a, and historically has always been a really nationalist area. So people there would always aspire to a United Ireland. The first thing you ask someone about United Ireland in Derry, where I'm from, the first thing they will say is the NHS. They do not want to pay for healthcare. A lot of people um, couldn't pay for their healthcare. I know like when I was growing up, my parents couldn't have afforded if I'd gone broke my arm and needed 200 euro for an x-ray so that's going to be the biggest concern and it's going to be a hurdle that eventually they're going to have to jump over how that would work in the future I don't know the different kind of taxes and national insurance and this kind of thing but it'll definitely it's I'd say it'll be if not the number one issue it will be top three. Naomi anything on that? Um, yeah, so basically, I mean, all healthcare systems are very complex. Um, in Ireland, I mean, if you, you you don't have to pay if you don't have the money. So if you have below a certain income, you you do have free healthcare. Um, then you know it's it's it, it's a tricky one. Um, there are different European systems which I think need to be looked at, and they're like it's it's basically it's a difficult problem that no country has an easy job solving, and I would include the UK in that. Um, Sometimes I think there's a temptation to see, because we're Anglophone, we look at the UK system, we look at the US system, and we see those as the only choices, and almost like a kind of a, a poll, you know, like either, you know, you have the NHS or you have some sort of a, yeah, American system, which, you know, is, you know, has obvious flaws that nobody wants. And, and then, you know, we have to find our way somewhere in the middle. But, you know, there's actually a lot more models to look at um, on, in, in Europe. And it's, it's difficult because essentially all countries are dealing with the fact that healthcare costs with an aging population um, that need more healthcare are rising. And also the percentage of people who are old in society is growing because there are fewer young people because people have less children. So it's just, just kind of, it's a, it's, a, it's a financial problem, it's difficult to solve um, and it takes a lot of money. And if you want to spend money on that, then it needs to be, people have to, the money has to come from somewhere. So it, it's very difficult. And with the staunch care plan that we were talking about, one of the obstacles for enacting it is that um, it, it, it would mean a lot of controversial local decisions. It might mean the shutting of smaller hospitals, for example. And that's one of the things that a lot of politicians run on in Ireland, because you know we're all, it's incredibly local. So a lot of politicians roll, would run on like their number one defining issue being that the local hospital wouldn't be closed or, or denigrated, for example. So it makes this an incredibly difficult topic to solve. Um, so I think, yeah, there's no easy answers, but yet yeah, I absolutely concur with Eve Grace that when, whenever I've been asking people around the North about uh, the prospect of United Ireland, always, you always get the response about, I don't want to pay 60 quid if I go to the doctor. You like it comes up immediately for all, time and time again. Okay, right. So I want to move on to some questions uh, from some uh, some of our patrons over on Patreon. Uh, Conrad and Liam and Connor all ask some questions that are in a similar vein, so I'll ask them together. Um, so um, they're about the potential future uh, repercussions 
for all the parties uh, in future elections um, after this. So uh, the first one is, uh, A, are there any precedents uh, locally or international for a coalition government made up of two equally sized partners like this? And um, in this case, does the little one still get crushed if they hold all the cards? Uh, yeah, there would be precedents for um, coalition partners of more or less equal size. And in terms of the little one always getting crushed, uh, it is kind of has, I mean, there's been a few famous cases lately. Um, obviously in the UK, there's been famous cases, been famous cases in Ireland with Labour, the Greens before, all of that. So like it is, it is something that does sometimes happen where the, the little one kind of soaks up all the blame for what the larger ones are doing. Um, but the general trend that we've seen over recent years is fragmentation and in essentially the overall the voucher of both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael declining. In order to reverse that trend, they're going to have to redefine themselves somehow um, or else I think they will, they will become, they will continue to become smaller and, and form something more like a centre centre right block, the two of them. Um, so it's, it's very difficult. I mean, it all depends on how things play out. Um, but yeah, absolutely, there's there, there's a possibility that these parties could become very unpopular over the next couple of years. It is going to be a difficult years to for them to navigate. Okay. Um, or I think I think add on Amika. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about the smaller party, and you know we've seen it in the UK as Naomi said with the Lib Dems and the Greens and Labour. Um, we saw it like we've seen it before in Ireland. So and it tends to be that the smaller party will tend to be more ideologically different to the other two and then in that case and then in that sense the voters who voted for them are going to fall away like they're more likely to be to be wiped out or lose at the polls because their voters saw them as something else before they had gone into government and were let down then in government whereas the two larger parties are probably going to hold on because it's their policies that are being implemented. Right, okay, and that actually brings us very nicely onto our, another listener question, uh, connectedly. Uh, um, are the Greens stupid for doing this? Um, don't the Greens always get shafted by this kind of agreement? Um, I suppose this is listeners thinking, uh, especially of the previous Fianna Fáil uh, uh, Green government um, that uh, kind of brought on or was there at the, um, at the financial crash. So um, yes, are, are the Greens stupid? Is this, uh, uh, like, is this a death wish on their behalf? Are they going to lose? <laughs> Uh, I'll take this. Well, I think you need to look at uh, Eamon Ryan. Like, he's already been in cabinet, so he lived through the last time they were crushed and put the party back together and has gone back again. So he's obviously not been that burned by his last experience. He hasn't sworn off government. From speaking to Eamon and speaking to the people around him, he, he really believes that the climate issue is just one that cannot be kicked down the road and he has to be in the room. The whole, I'm just trying to think of a better metaphor here but they hold their feet to the fire in terms of sorting out the climate emergency he just doesn't think there's any time left and a lot of climate activists would agree with him that we are running out of time and they have to be in there instead of hurling from the dutch is everyone's favorite phrase in uh the arctis but um definitely not stupid i would say those who are supportive of the program for government would argue that it would be stupid not to because no, uh, be stupid not to because uh, time's running out. The earth just can't wait. Right. Okay. Right. And yes, um, keeping with uh, forces of nature, um, another question from Connor Liam and Conrad: um, Are Finna Gael in a really weirdly super strong position 
because of COVID-19. Um, of course, we saw Fine Gael bouncing back in the polls after this really humiliating kind of defeat in the last general elections uh, during the COVID-19 crisis. And I suppose a lot of people felt that maybe that might be a, a reaction to um, a need for security and the status quo um, uh, suddenly um, bubbling up again. Um, is this true? Are Fine Gael in this government going to be in a, in a weirdly super strong position? Um, well, I mean, I think in many countries there's been like a, a boost in support for the party in government um, during the coronavirus crisis because there's quite a common feeling that, okay, we need to set our differences aside. This is a common enemy that doesn't discriminate and we need to pull together to, to, um, to confront it. And also there's a kind of um, oddly seeing a leader, um, you know, ascend to the stage to address the nation in a time of emergency. It, it triggers positive feelings in people towards the leader for one reason or another. I don't really understand what the psychology of it is, but it is the case in many different countries that that has happened. And it happened to have been Leo Braga who was in that position. Now, does that mean that that translates into support for him at the next election? No, it does not. It doesn't, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that at all. I think that that kind of boost is rather fickle. Um, we've seen how the Irish electorate is very unpredictable. It's very swingy. Um, and fluid these days. And, you know, I don't think that they can necessarily count on that support at all. Okay, right now we don't have uh, that much time left. So I'm gonna try and squeeze in as many questions as possible in, in our last few minutes. Um, so there's two questions here um, about, um, about what has been going on with the Black Lives Matter protests and the current climate, um, the current political climate uh, surrounding racism. Uh, so Caden Colton uh, asks, how will the new government work on issues dealing with the rights for black and other people of color within Ireland? What change will, um, what change, what will change with Brexit and how will it be dealt with? And Connor Murray also asked, will direct provision be abolished like they promised and what will replace it? So do you, uh, either of you have any answers for those two questions? Yeah, well, just on direct provision, you know, this is definitely can be seen as a one for the Green Party and Roger Gorman and Joe O'Brien, the TDs especially, who went in and fought this corner from the first day when justice, actually I think justice was the first day of formal government negotiations. And they said from the outset, that they wanted direct provision in its current form abolished and they wanted, I think it's called own door, um, an own door system. So they, what we wanted to stop was this for-profit system that we've seen of old hostels, hotels, different things, different centers like that, having lots of people, lots of kids cramped in one room. And the for-profit system was, it hadn't worked. I think everyone has agreed whether in government or not, that it hasn't worked. Uh, billions have been spent. There's been a number of uh, Arachnus committees where we've heard like the most horrific testimony from people who have loved their children, who have loved there, and it's been ended. How they do it um, remains to be seen, as we keep talking about recession. There isn't going to be a lot of money to be thrown around. And we already have a homeless crisis, which is always what Fine Gael say when you talk about ending direct provision is we're never going to be in a position to give everybody a house. But I do think the Greens are going to push for this. It's in the programme for government now. And it's something I think that the Green electorate would not forgive them for if they didn't get some kind of proper change to the system. Yeah, so I was looking into this for an article for the Irish Times, just looking at like how could direct provision be ended? And if there's any examples that we can look at from around Europe that can, like offer 
um, learning points. Um, and essentially, there is no easy answer uh, to this to this issue. The major things that our, Ireland is infamous for is for people having an extremely long time of stay, an unforgivably long time of stay. It, like the maximum you're supposed to send, spend in a collective center, like direct provision, is supposed to be six months. And other countries, for example, Belgium did a review. They found that the average length of stay there was 13 months. And they said that that was unacceptably long. 13 months in Ireland would be very, very short. Um, so, you know, that, that to change that, what you need is quicker processing of people's claims. Um, and that isn't to do with availability of housing. So that's one major thing that could be improved. And um, then, you know, another one is the, the catering issue. So one of the major complaints of people is the lack of control over their lives and how they become institutionalized because they don't have control over when they eat because there's, you know, lunchtime set and dinner time set and they get served stuff, but they don't like, they're not able to observe their own birthdays and Christmas or, you know, whatever holidays they might celebrate and um, themselves. So changing it so that they have more power over their own lives and they can shop for themselves um, and just have own door. So they just have to key, the key to their own door so they can come in and out when they want. That's the major change. That's kind of changes that would make a big difference to people's lives. In, in terms of a big transformation into um, a system more like Sweden's, where yes, people do get their own apartment and they're allowed, they're allowed to choose between whether they want to stay in a, in a collective center, which isn't necessarily always seen as a bad thing because there, you know, you might have facilities for the kids, you might have legal support, you might have medical support, you might have all these sorts of community that you can access. It's not necessarily seen as a bad thing. It's all about the execution or they can have the key to their own apartment and they go and stay there. Now, key to one's own apartment, obviously in Ireland is just not feasible at the moment because of the number of people who are already on waiting lists um, who, for social housing. Like there just isn't a housing there for that to be done now. Um, so it's not a simple issue. And at what point do you declare that the direct provision system is ended? Is it ended when the providers of the services are changed and they're not the for-profit private businesses anymore? Or, you know, if it, it's unlikely, I think, that you're gonna see people in individual housing anytime soon. They're still gonna be in collective housing, but it is there is lots of potential for that, that situation to be better than it is currently. Right, that's a really interesting point actually. Yeah, what exactly constitutes this ending um, or you know, uh, will it not just evolve? Um, right, um, now moving on very quickly, just to squeeze in some questions about international affairs. Uh, one of our listeners asks, is a rotating Taoiseach going to complicate our involvement in, involvement in EU affairs? Uh, that's the first question. Um, how do the three parties settle on a commissioner? That's um, another question. And why aren't we electing commissioners yet anyway? Well, um, European commissioners are um, nominated at the beginning of the term of the new commission. So it's not to do with the nomination of the Irish government, but um, our commissioner was already nominated last year, Phil Hogan. Uh, he's the trade commissioner. And actually, this is something I really want to talk about. Um, Ireland is at a very, very interesting juncture in terms of international affairs. The sort of renown of Ireland and the political um, punch that Ireland has, I suppose, is massively increased uh, since the Brexit process because Ireland's interests were elevated during that point to the point where the EU 27 were actually negotiating for them. Um, so what's happened now is that we have all of these Irish people who are either in or running for really prominent international positions. Ireland has just got a seat on the UN Security Council um, where we've got uh, Phil Hogan in trade, which is a very big position already. He's even possibly gonna go for the head of the WTO, the World Trade Organization. So that will be another step onto the, the bigger stage. Pascal Donoghue is likely to be the next head of the Eurogroup, which is a really powerful um, group of finance ministers. I mean, he hasn't been elected yet, but he's a very, very strong contender for that position. 
Um, so you've got all of these Irish people in prominent positions, and it's a very, very important moment for the EU um, in terms of configuring the future of the euro. And Ireland has this very interesting uh, sort of position in that it's a kind of a, a bridge-building um, moderate country between the deep splits of the North and South on, um, on economic matters. So there really is a potential for Ireland to play a very leading role in shaping the future of the European Union right now. Um, and I think it's quite interesting that we're going to have two Tishi play or, uh, you know, two parties here because one is in the EPP, which is the biggest um, political grouping in the European Parliament, very powerful. Um, they are centre-right or right-wing. Then one is Renew Europe, which is Macron's group. Um, and they have different visions about what the future of Europe should be. And bringing them together, I think, is actually really interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Right. So just to finish up, I suppose I'll ask both of you, um, if you were to summarize this for an international newspaper uh, in one paragraph, what is the big takeaway from this, um, from this day in politics and in history? I'll start with you, Eva. Yeah, I, I'm going to go for the obvious one. Um, although people would say civil war politics ended uh, a while ago, I think this is the first official end of civil war politics. This is a coalition of equals between old enemies. So I think in terms of history, people who have lived it mightn't see it and mightn't feel it. It might feel any different. We've had confidence and supply before between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, but this is definitely the the end of the civil war. I don't think anyone can call them the civil war part, uh, parties anymore. And I think it's really interesting and it says a lot about the time we're in that even that the Green Party are also involved climate became an issue during the election. Irish people are concerned about the environment. And I think that's like a real reflection of the electorate and how they voted in February. All right, and what about you, Naomi? I think there's two very different ways of seeing this. I think supporters of this programme for government and this coalition can see it uh, in very positive light. It shows unity, it shows maturity in Ireland as a democracy, that people can come together and you know, form a complex co coalition with different points of view. Um, and as Aoife says, I think the climate inclusion of the Greens in it is really important at this point in time. Um, on the other side, though, um, I do think that there is a worrying division here of interests and, and, um, and views, where if you look at the election, you had this massive youth vote um, for parties for change, particularly Sinn Féin, and indeed the Greens, in, uh, particularly on the housing issue, as we saw, that is um, not going anywhere, that problem. There's essentially massive generational inequality in Ireland, and this government needs to address that, or else what we're going to have is even further stratification there, and also growing anger among young people in terms of losing out. If they, if they don't manage to get and improve the housing crisis, I think that they could potentially face a massive disinfection, disaffection um, in terms of young people not in terms of them even voting, but maybe just not voting, not engaging in politics, because, you know, there was, young people have driven the movements for change, they've driven the referendums, they've driven this unprecedented election that we just had. Um, and if they don't see those things resulting in change, then I think that that, that tells um, a bad, dangerous lesson at this point in time for democracy, because I do think that it, they have a, younger people people at the sharp end of generational inequality have a genuine complaint that needs to be addressed. And it's very important that that doesn't go unheard. 
Okay, all right. Thank you so much uh, to both of you for your wonderful insights. Uh, if you want to hear more from Aoife Moore, you can find her over on the Irish Examiner and uh, hear a lot more of her insights. Um, a big thank you to you, Aoife. Thank you so much for having joined us. A big thank you to, to Darek as well, Darek O'Shea of, of course, the Motherfucker podcast, um, who, who joined us earlier on. Uh, you can hear more from him, of course, over on uh, Motherfucker. Now, if you tuned in halfway through this video, or if you're just tuning in now, or if you missed some bits, um, we will put the entire thing up on Patreon so you can catch it a second time. And if you're not already a patron, you can head over and become a, a patron. Uh, you can head over and become one right now uh, at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport, and you can access our whole archive of extra content material. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks to all of you at home watching, and uh, all the best to you, and of course, all the best to our new t shirt, Neil Martin. All the best. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.